When I was five years old and my sister was one, my father wanted us to grow up speaking French because small children learn languages very easily. So he rented a house in Le Touquet in France and mum, me and my sister went there and the plan was to be there for at least a year. We'd been there just three months when war broke out. And of course we had to leave. But I do remember one funny story about that, which I was told that we'd been going to host a wedding of one of the friends of my father's and the champagne that had been ordered arrived, big crates of champagne ready for the wedding. And then of course the war broke out and there were all these crates of champagne, no wedding. And so everybody who came to the house, the tradesmen, the dustmen, the baker, they were all given bottles of champagne to take home with them. So it must have been a lot of quite drunk and surprised people, I think. We are all connected. All our voices matter. And it will take all of our pooled talents and strengths to create a healthier planet. Our mother, our one and only home. I aspire to change the world too, because of the hope she gave me. The earth is beautiful. She devoted her life together to Together we can save the world. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I get to speak with one of my favorite people, Dr. Lillian Pintea. I've always said that we can only achieve our true human potential when head and heart are in harmony. And Lillian is proof of this. He's a brilliant and innovative scientist, and at the same time, has so much understanding and respect for the people and wildlife he works with. Lillian first came to Gombe as a student from the University of Minnesota, collecting data for his PhD in conservation biology. He joined our JGI USA team in 2004 and has introduced cutting-edge geospatial technologies to the job of conserving chimpanzees and other wildlife. He's now Vice President of Conservation Science, overseeing all JGI's science activities in Africa. He works with the Gombe Research Team and with our Takari program, JGI's method of community-led conservation. He works closely with local communities, ensuring that they have the tools to monitor the health of their forests. He also works with scientists and other NGOs in mapping the range of chimpanzees across Africa. I'm looking forward to our conversation about how far science has come since I first stepped onto the shore of Gombe, Tanzania, over 60 years ago, and where it will take us. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Dr. Lillian Pintea. I am really and truly looking forward to this episode of Hopecast, because it's with one of my very, very favorite people, somebody who's done so much for JGI for chimpanzees, Dr. Lillian Pintea. Welcome to our Hopecast. Thank you, Jane. I'm so happy to be here and honored to be invited to speak with you. 
I'm going to start, Lillian. When you were growing up, you were in a very different world. What was it like? I, I really want to know, what was it like going to university in Moscow? It is different, Jane. One of my first memories was camping and fishing and collecting mushrooms with my dad. And you could say that in some way it's a very different world, but it's a very similar interaction with my parents, with my dad, with my mother, growing up in a community, being lucky to be free range and connecting with nature. Love to read, love to read books. I don't know how many times I reread the Darwin's The Voyage of the Beagles. And of course, books about by Grzimek, about Serengeti, and by you. And that inspired me and put a seed of this dream to work on wildlife in Africa. What a crazy idea, isn't it? You know, being uh, on another side of the Iron Curtain in the former Soviet Union, born in Moldova. Of course, it all starts with this passion. I loved uh, snakes. By the time I was 14 years old, I was working already with some scientists in the Moldovan Institute of Zoology studying snakes. And I remember my poor mother, she allowed me and actually even encouraged that I can continue studying them. And I remember in our little apartment, I had 1.200 snakes. It opened those doors for this snake boy from a little town in Moldova to go to one of the best schools in Soviet Union, which is at Moscow State University. And of course, arriving there, it was also amazing times. It was during Perestroika. It was during the Gorbachev times. It was the time of rethinking your identity, understanding who you are, how you relate to all these cultures and land and history. And it was very exciting to be there. After you left the university in Moscow, what was the next stage in your journey to us? Well, um, around 1990, I came across this book about satellite imagery. And while as a biologist, of course, we would not study this, that's supposed to be studied by geologists and geographers. I loved it. I loved this to have this ability to look at the landscapes, at the ecosystems, at the habitats, which we are studying and try to understand from above. And um, I was lucky to go to a professor at University of Moscow in geography and ask if I can just be there and listen to her classes. And she not only allowed me to attend these classes, but also was the co-advisor for me to start using the satellite imagery. And that passion and work brought me to Danube Delta, where, thanks to a UNESCO Cousteau Fellowship, I was able to be part of this incredible interdisciplinary team of system ecologists, thinking holistically about not only understanding how the ecosystem works, but what does it mean to achieve real change? And this is where I got exposed to the importance of talking the same language across doesn't matter if you are an architect or an engineer or a lawyer, we need to learn how to talk the same language about the importance of ecosystems, of biodiversity, of this important function which is supporting life on Earth. So that was my time in Romania that allowed me to continue to come to U.S. with a Fulbright Fellowship to study remote sensing and satellite imagery because I was so much interested in learning all these technologies and computer approaches. I arrived in the U.S. in 96, and in 97, it was already my first trip to Africa. And around 2000, I was ready to combine my technical skills, but wanted to work with a passion group 
on the ground with real people, with real decision makers, with real problems and understand what is the role of me as a scientist who has access to this amazing technology, what it requires to unlock this potential to truly achieve change on the ground. And this is how it brought me to University of Minnesota, to Dr. Ann Pusey, um, who is, of course, your student, and to the Jane Goodall Institute Center for Primary Studies. Pretty amazing journey, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> and out of all the things you could have done, you ended up in tiny little Gombe National Park. You know, that first you were working for your PhD? or That's right. I had a PhD and it was a little bit different. I wasn't a behavioral um, biologist. I was a conservation biologist who brought this satellite imagery, GIS, and combine it with your amazing long-term data. I remember the first day when I started bringing this every 15-minute uh, uh, chimpanzee observation collected by the field researchers in Gombe. You know, every day, uh, rain or shine, or and these points start appearing and realizing how much work it went into collecting this amazing, completely unique data set. And I remember the first thing which I did actually in the first or second week was ordering two satellite images. One was from 1972, collected by the first Landsat program satellite called Landsat MSS. And the second one was from 1999. And that was the first time, I think, which many of us and many of you and, and our team on the ground was able to look how the habitat actually changed. And I remember looking at that and sending you an email. And then a few months later, we met in Gombe. And now you are accepted as one of the most key components in the JGI of today and leading the conservation science team how did you survive? How did you gather in? How did you make these amazing relationships with Esri and Google Earth? How did it work? Well, Jane, you know, it was very early for primatologists, for conservation biologists to embrace the power of GIS, remote sensing, and all these other technologies. And it helped tremendously that you immediately recognize the power of it. I remember the first time we're sitting in Gombe in December 2000, right? And I showed you the historical aerial photos collected over Gombe going all the way back in 1948, 1957, I think. And then it was another one, 1974, after you were there. And I remember you looked at me and said, this is magic. You immediately recognized the importance of it, the value of it. You know, Google Earth came later in 2005 doing, of course, pretty much the same thing, but at a scale which it's incredible. And now the capacity and ability of technologies to bring us to places which we've never been or to be connected to places which we never maybe be able to visit are tremendous. But the question is still the same. How we can unlock the power of these tools, technologies, data, information into influencing people who make daily decisions about their lives, about the environment, about the forests, how we can unlock their potential. And that brings me back, you know, to Takare, because the secret, of course, is not about data. It's about people. It's about people trust and being able to 
understand that they are the ones who make decisions and they drive decisions and they are the stewards of their own land, their own lives and their own environment. I will never forget sitting with you. You managed to get one of these high-resolution satellite maps and spread it out on the ground and the villagers were sitting around it and, you know, this woman who said, that's the tree and I, I put my baby under that tree when I'm working in the fields and you were explaining about the, the degradation of the land where they cut the trees on the steep slopes yeah. and how they immediately understood that woman who said, now she's seen this, she's prepared to walk two extra hours to her farm because she realizes that it's not good to farm on the very steep slopes because of mudslide that wiped out half her village. And that very first session where the only map they had was drawn in the sand with their fingers. <laughs> I mean, you know, and how the technology has changed. Because of that trust, which was already established, because of that partnership, when people saw those maps, they were so happy. And they were so eager to map out and record their knowledge. And I remember at some point, they start mapping sacred sites. And I was looking at the Takari team and asking, what I'm supposed to do with this information? <laughs> I wasn't taught in conservation science uh, how to deal with invisible, uh, how to deal with you know, traditional knowledge at that time. But again, thanks to the team thinking, we were able to record and recognize that as an important perspective and values which people had about their land and the way how they, they see their land. And I do remember exactly that in a woman focal group, because we would set up a woman focal group since, as you know, men sometimes would go in front and, and speak. Uh, but actually, women are the ones who have a lot of knowledge about the land. They are the ones fetching water. They're the ones looking for firewood. They're the ones going farming. When traditional sacred sites were start being put on the map, of course, I went back and started reading about it, asking about how the traditional healers, how the traditional spiritual people in the communities, what roles they have. Of course, I, that helped me understand and learn that people didn't just settle. They spiritual leaders had to ask the spirits for permission to be on that land. And often the spiritual leaders, of course, had deep knowledge, as you know, very, very well uh, from many people which uh, you engaged and valued in your research, had this incredible knowledge of plants, animals, and they were integrating all this knowledge uh, for their communities. And now look what's happening now. You know, we are so specialized. In order to be a botanist, you need to go to get the botanical degree. In order to be an engineer, you need to go to engineering. And I think we have a challenge to integrate our sectoral, fragmented, very specialized, very professional, but bringing it all together to make better and wiser decisions, it's a challenge. And the value of this GIS and mapping technologies is helping us to do exactly this. Bring back all this information together on the same map, show the connection between the people, animals, environment, and communicate that to everybody. And let's try to make better decisions.
Well, uh, Jane, you know, uh, Microsoft is a company which recently we started working with. And during my first trip, I got introduced to the uh, engineers on um, Project Premonition. This incredible device, it's a robot capturing mosquitoes by detecting through lasers the frequency of the wings of different insects. But what is truly amazing is that in the cases when a mosquito maybe has some blood, we can take this blood, run it through a pipeline of metagenomic tools all running in the cloud and predict with quite high level of certainty on what animals those mosquitoes fed on. And not only that, if those animals were infected by any major pathogens. So suddenly, you know, you start looking at the mosquitoes as flying around an ecosystem and sampling the ecosystem health. And you start looking at the diversity of insects in different way as another indicator of, of ecosystem health. And of course, all of that is connecting to human health in so many different ways. The Gombe One Health Hub project, it's exactly that. It's not only brings new technologies like, as we speak right now, we're setting up one of the first field PCR technologies in Western Tanzania. It will be amazing to have this ability to detect some of the potential pathogens right there in Gombe without bringing it out of the country or sending it to the labs around the world. And that unlocks the potential not only for us quicker to detect diseases, it also enables us, if we combine it with Takari, to connect scientists with decision makers, to connect scientists with communities. And as Takari showed us, people from the beginning care about health. And we also know because of the chimps that disease is also one of the major threats to chimpanzees. And we also know that you have been talking about the need to think holistically and connect animal, people, and environment since the beginning of creating the Jane Goodall Institute. So um, here we are. Finally, the world is catching up with this important idea. And now we have the insight, the technologies, and we know how to do it. So it's very exciting times. It is very exciting. And there's also something else, which, for example, when you were setting up your mosquito traps, big problem, baboons, baboons want to investigate everything. So it's not just a question of simply setting up a mosquito trap. You have to make it baboon-proof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it, Lillian. I mean, honestly, we're realists. We know the problems on the ground see the vision in the future, how to get there, okay, you have to tackle this problem, this problem, that problem, bring them all together, and you get your solution. Jane, this is what I love the most. A lot of times we're dealing with innovative technologies which are not designed for conservation. They are designed for other purposes or for other needs, and we, are, we need to understand and adapt these technologies to work where they need it maybe and can provide the most benefit to to the planet. That means indeed dealing with truly interesting questions. Like one of my favorite one is when we start using the first smartphones uh, in 2009, the first screens of the smartphones were not very sensitive. So some of the farmers which had a little bit more rough fingers, the screens would not detect them. And uh, obviously the now technology changed and it's much more 
sensitive, but how you charge a phone when you're in a village which there is no electricity, how you send and take advantage of the cloud when the closest internet connectivity is, you know, miles and hundreds of miles away. <laughs> well, you're in the middle of the wet season, but it's going <laughs> to rain day after day after day. Right. So we right. have to be very inventive. <laughs> you know, if, if we're talking about the challenges, I still think that the major challenge is not technological. The real challenge is how you take this again this con and convert this amazing information and tools and data to actually improve conservation decisions on the ground. And I think that's the key, which you showed again and again so, so clearly and inspired a generation of storytellers and scientists who are learning to be better storytellers and uh, reaching to their hearts. So we look forward to more innovation, to more development, to more involvement, moving in a direction that will benefit the people, the chimpanzees and other animals, and the environment. I'm just so grateful that we met in that Swiss Air Lounge all those years ago. <laughs> you are one of those remarkable scientists who has as much heart as head. So thank you really very much. Thank you, Jane, for deeply inspiring me and for all your support and for your friendship over the years and for helping all of us to understand how important it is to unlock this power of individuals, from understanding individual chimpanzees to empowering and, and letting each individual know that they're important and they have a choice and, and power. Once the villagers had come to trust us, they began to understand that preserving the forest, the environment, was just as important for their own future as for preserving wildlife. They got together all the data that they have decided is important. GIS helps us see a picture of the environment that we cannot see from down on the ground. It's been shown in some forests where chimpanzees and other large animals have been hunted out that the forest is not regenerating. So chimpanzees are a very, very important part of the forest ecosystem. If we get together now, it's not too late. We can solve the problems. We will. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Our producers are Ina Gaukusha and Alana Hellens. Our associate producer is Laura Boyman.
and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. <laughs>